Hello film lovers, welcome back to the Feminist Film Club podcast. We have a lot to cover today, so it's gonna be a good episode. First off, we're covering the Oscars that happened last Sunday. Second, we're covering our movie of the week, which was The Hurt Locker. And third, we have on my friend Natalie, who works in live events, and she just worked the Oscars last Sunday, which is pretty freaking cool. So when I saw the pictures that she posted, I DM'd her immediately and I said, you're coming on my podcast, and she said, okay. So we'll be talking about that as well. So if you wanna work in live events, this is the episode for you. So not to toot my own horn or anything, but this is the closest I have ever predicted the Oscars ever. <laughs> there were some snubs in there, some surprises, but don't worry, I'm gonna explain it all. So we're gonna go in order of how the night unfolded because that makes the most sense to me. <laughs> So starting off strong with best animated feature. Now this one's Pinocchio, which has been winning in the award show circuit this year. And Guillermo's speech was very sweet about how we have to keep animation alive. Next up, and probably one of my favorite, favorite awards of the night was Kiwi Kwan winning Best Supporting Actor. I genuinely want to see him win every single award he can. He is one of the happiest people I think I've ever seen, ever. <laughs> And you could really tell how genuinely thankful he was for this recognition. But the whole premise of his speech was basically that you should never ever give up on your dreams, no matter how far out of reach you think they are. You have to believe in your dreams for your dreams to work. He said something along the lines of that, which I think is really beautiful. Because if you don't believe in yourself, how do you think your dreams are going to come true? You know? Next up, we have the award for Best Supporting Actress, which I think was all a shock to us, but let me explain. So that award went to Jamie Lee Curtis for her part in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, we have to remember that number one, the Academy loves a good comeback story, and number two, overall, the Academy is still a business. And Jamie Lee Curtis has been in the business for a very, 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 very long time, and this is her first Oscar nomination. And even before she was in the business, her parents were in the business, and they've also been nominated for Oscars. And I think her family is so predominant in this business. And I think we all thought that either Angela Bassett or Stephanie Hsu was going to win this, but I think that the Oscars are very against giving awards for best actor or actress versus something going on behind the scenes. I don't think they would ever give something like that to Marvel. They have before with DC and the Joker, so I'm not really sure about the correlation with that, but I don't think Marvel has ever gotten a prestigious award like that. Needless to say, we were all shocked, and I think Jamie Lee Curtis was just as shocked. She wins the award for best, best reaction to her win. If you haven't seen that video yet, you have to. She literally, she literally screams no way before she gets up to accept her award. And she also had one of my favorite acceptance speeches of the night. She talked about how anyone that's ever gotten her to where she is, is just as much deserving of this Oscar as she is. She said, I look like I'm standing up here alone, but I am hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and I think it's really nice that she acknowledged everyone that got her here. And then at the end she said, we just won an Oscar. She might not have deserved it entirely for everything everywhere all at once, but her career as a whole, I think she did. And as I said earlier, the Academy loves a good comeback story. Best documentary feature went to Navalny, and I can't speak much on that because I have not seen it yet, but if it won, I bet it's good. <laughs> Next up, best live action short went to An Irish Goodbye. And one of the kids I went to grad school with was actually the production coordinator on on this short film. After they announced the award, everyone was texting in our group chat saying like, oh my gosh, congrats, congrats. And I was like, holy shit, like you just won an Oscar. If you haven't seen it yet, you should go check it out. It's a good one. 
Best Cinematography of the Night, and I also thought this was one of the best presented awards of the night, and this went to All Quiet on the Western Front, which swept a lot of the awards that night. I think this award was very deserving for this film, and the way that Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors came out and presented the award was pretty cool because they showed almost the evolution of cinematography and how it got to where it is now, and I'm a very visual learner, so seeing that was pretty cool. Best Hair and Makeup went to The Whale for the insane, insane, insane prosthetics that they put Brendan Fraser in to make him look obese. But you guys have to understand how hard it is to be able to move naturally and have your genuine facial expressions come through in prosthetics. And they created his whole prosthetic suit from scratch. So yes, I think the whale was very deserving of this award. Best costume design went to Black Panther. As I said, they're more prone to giving Marvel these kinds of awards, like the more quote unquote behind the scenes roles. I think Black Panther was super, super, super deserving of this award. I mean, those costumes all the way down to the extras are so detailed and gorgeous that it was so deserving. And I know a lot of people were upset that Elvis did not win, but the way I'm thinking about it and explaining it to people is that Ruth Carter, who is the costume designer of Black Panther, created these costumes and this world of Wakanda from her own mind. And it's not to say that the costumes in Elvis were not great, but they were recreations. So I think it's clear why Black Panther won over Elvis. Best International Feature, I thought was in between All Quiet on the Western Front and Argentina 1985 and it did go to All Quiet on the Western Front and guys it is on Netflix if you do want to go check it out. Best documentary short went to The Elephant Whisperer. Now I have not seen this short but from the trailer it looked super super cute and educational. Now what was not too cute was them cutting off the producer of this film before she had a chance to say what she had to say about accepting her award and then they let two men talk for two other awards where there was more than one winner which is interesting. Now I want to give the Academy the benefit of the doubt and say that they learned from their mistake after accidentally cutting her off. Fingers crossed that that's true. But I did repost her speech onto my account because she did give it after she walked off stage and it was great. She talked about how it was a really good win for India. I think one of the first actually. And how women are the future. She's right. The best animated short went to The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse, which I have not seen, but from the reaction, it seems well-deserved. Best production design was a bit of a surprise for me. I genuinely thought this was gonna go to Babylon, but it went to All Quiet on the Western Front, which is not surprising. Best original score, I also thought was gonna go to Babylon because as we know, Damien Chazelle always has really, really, really good music in his films. I mean, hopefully you guys have seen Whiplash and La La Land, and if you haven't, and I'm not one to be like, oh my god, you haven't watched that, but I genuinely think they are very good films. So if you need one to watch, there's my suggestion for now. But Justin Hurwitz, who has scored almost all of Damien Chazelle's films, if I'm correct, won the past two for, for his scoring of La La Land. And then he also won Best Original Song, City of Stars from La La Land as well. So I was like, I think it's going to go to this. But it did go to All Quiet on the Western Front again. Like I said, they sweeped that night. Best Visual Effects, of course, went to Avatar Way of Water. And James Cameron wasn't there that night, which I thought was a little weird. But maybe he had something going on. You never know. Best original screenplay went to Everything Everywhere All at Once and best adapted screenplay went to Women Talking and I wanted to bring something up here that I thought was interesting. Not that these two screenplays are not very deserving of this award but one of the people I follow on TikTok her name is Julia York. She's a screenwriter. She had realized that both of the winners of the screenplay this year were also the directors of the film that they wrote and then she did some research back into how many director writers have won the writing 
category and it's almost all of them so no just sole writer has really ever won the award which i think is just a little interesting best sound i didn't really know who that was gonna go to but it did go to top gun and best original song went to not to not to from rrr and if you guys were not up and dancing when they performed that number then i don't know what was going on because i was like oh my god this is awesome the energy the energy the presence was so good that was my favorite performance of the night best editing easy went to everything everywhere all at once the team of editors that did this movie were all self-taught so you guys this is just proves you don't need to go to school to do this like he learned how to edit tutorial to edit this movie you just have to put the work in and you have to want it the effort you know but i thought that was a really cool little fact and then best directing i thought was going to go to spielberg because i just really enjoyed the fablemans and i think it's even harder directing something so personal but it did go to the directors of everything everywhere all at once the directors are Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. They call them the Daniels, <laughs> which is funny. But their speech was also really sweet. They talked about how they're so thankful that their parents never dulled their creativity as a kid and let them be who they wanted to be. And about how representation is so, so important. And then I think I have this written down on my Instagram story. One of the quotes from the speech was, this is to all the mommies of the world. Now, my favorite, 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 favorite award of the night went to best actor. And I know everyone was thinking this was gonna go to Austin Butler, but you guys, like I said earlier, the Academy loves a good comeback story. So I don't think this was ever Austin's award. I mean, Austin was incredible in Elvis, truly, but Brendan Fraser was like, I screamed when he won that and then I almost started crying for him like he really needed that and I think it was really nice of the Academy to give that to him especially after all these years and everything that he's gone through he's back next up best actress which I think a lot of people also thought was Kate Blanchett's but this went to our Queen Michelle Yeoh which makes her the first Asian woman to ever win this award insanity and so 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 deserving and her speech was incredible again talking about the importance of representation and then at the end she said ladies don't ever let anyone tell you you're past your prime what a great way to end it and last but not least not surprising at all best picture went to everything everywhere all at once and that was a really great moment for all of them, I think. So Everything Everywhere All at Once ended up taking home the most awards of the night, which is not surprising. Like I've said in previous videos and podcasts, I have never really seen anything like Everything Everywhere All at Once before. Still, my favorite award of the night went to Kiwicon. Like, <laughs> I, I just, I want to give him a hug. And that's it for the Oscars 2023. This was like one of the best Oscar shows I've seen in a while. Even though it was long, I genuinely enjoyed sitting through the whole thing and I might be biased just because I love film, but the whole time I was manifesting myself in that room, I cannot wait until I can sit in those seats in the Dolby Theater. And I'm not even saying that selfishly, I'm saying it, I'm putting it out into the universe so it comes back to me. Just like Huey Kwan said, you have to believe in your dreams for your dreams to come true. Hi Natalie. Hey guys, what's up? How are you? I'm good, thanks for having me on today. I'm so excited to have you on. It's gonna be iconic, I got you on your only day off. I know, no, we're so lucky. <laughs> we're so lucky. We're just grinding out here. Actually, you are. I'm trying to. No, you're grinding too. You might hear a few, like, um, horns and stuff. It's fine. It's the ambiance. She lives in New York City, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I actually think you're the first person from New York that I've had. On the podcast? In London. Yeah, you're the first. Wow. In New York. What are you working? What are you doing? So, my name is Natalie. I am from western New Jersey, not far from where you are, Megan. And, um... Mm -hmm. 
I went to high school, you know, like every normal person does, and then I went to college in New York City at Marymount Manhattan. I majored in musical theater, I minored in TV production, and then after college I graduated and I was like, I need to do something that involves two of my favorite things, TV and musical theater, so I was like, oh my gosh, the Mm -hmm. Tony Awards, the perfect combination. And Mm -hmm. so I landed a PA gig on the Tony Awards, and I actually was able to work at the producer's table which was like insane oh my god and then it's kind of been all up from there I mean I feel like um I've been able to work with like the producers on many different things and I've been able to just learn so much from everyone and I've had my fair share of really bad PA gigs but I've also had my fair Mm -hmm. share of really good PA gigs Mm -hmm. did a few TV shows I did the VMAs and then I was at the Oscars she was at the Oscars guys (laughs) I was at the 95th Academy Awards. (laughs) It was crazy. It really was. I can't. Social media is completely a highlight reel. Like, I was lugging around waters. I had Mm -hmm. bruises all over my body. Like, I was picking up cellos Mm -hmm. for the orchestra. And there was a orchestra. All in your nice dress, too. Literally. And and Mm -hmm. I only got dressed for the show an hour before the show. Like... I barely oh made God. it onto that red carpet with makeup oh my on God. my face. I was sweating. Um, okay. So many things happened. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> behind the scenes that, like, oh that social media really truly is a highlight reel. How did you get your first job in live events? Basically, I had worked in high school. I did an internship at this little tiny company that I don't even know if they exist anymore. Um, okay. And I got it through my high school. We would get like credited internships. Um, we get to leave mm-hmm. like once a week, take the whole day to do that internship. So yeah. it was at a production company in New Jersey and I would drive my car to Old Japan. So I, my first few things I did with them, they did a lot of like media days, intros to shows. We did a little bit for SNL, for Food Network. And so I learned a lot like being their intern. I had a lot of, you know, filing and scanning to do as well as just carrying yeah. around. Oh my God. Um, so much fun gallons and gallons of water and coffee orders Mm -hmm. but and then when I graduated college which was like four years after the internship I had reached out to them asking where Mm -hmm. and how I can get Mm -hmm. my foot in the door in the industry Mm -hmm. and I had been working on things in college at this theater company I was the production assistant for Mm -hmm. a lot of the galas the Tada Youth Theater Company they're called and Mm -hmm. It was not paid, you know, I was just doing it to get, you know, the experience. It was an unpaid internship during Mm -hmm. college. And so that kind of led me into, like, doing theater live events. And so I had that on my resume, and they were like, why don't you just try going on Staff Me Up? I don't know if you've ever heard of Staff Me Up. Oh, yeah, we talked about Staff Me Up on, I think, episode three. That's where my friend got a lot of her job, but she's in L.A. Mm -hmm. And so Staff Me Up is, like, literally the place where I like landed like my first like jobs in the industry and I got an email hey like we need you to work the Tony Awards and I was like holy shit and so that was my first intro to live events in TV Mm -hmm. and so and then I kind of just kept riding from there that whole summer was super busy for me I barely had time off I was I worked on a Hulu Mm -hmm. show which is coming out soon yeah like I just was grinding, doing a bunch of things. I've worked on a few Apple Music Live events since then. Okay, cool. And so I've kind of just been, like, working in the music and performing arts industry while also, like, Mm -hmm. working in TV, which is, like, two of the exact things that I 
did in college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of landed me to the point where I was like, I reached out to one of my connections that I made from mm-hmm. like the past shows I, I work. Connections are so important. Literally. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I really kind of want to see what it's like to work out in LA. Um, mm-hmm. If you're looking for anyone for the Oscars or the Grammys or the Emmys, like I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I had kind of been contacting a few people who were like production coordinating and the Oscars was like the best option for me. That's insane. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely insane. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I just flew out. I did my thing there and I, mm-hmm. I worked the Oscars and I was a production associate, production assistant. And I worked at the producer's table for the dress rehearsals and it was just crazy, yeah. Yeah, I think my like takeaway is though like it's all not it's not all like sunshine and rainbows. When I first like landed mm-hmm. and hopped off the plane at LAX, like mm-hmm. I literally was like hopped off the plane at LAX. <laughs> literally, um, I was like, oh my god, we're here. We're going to the ninety fifth Academy Awards, and mm-hmm. then I get there and I, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I had some weird experiences with people there, and like mm-hmm. I think this industry is super competitive, and you don't know who's so like competitive. It's literally doggy dog. You can think you're close to someone, and they're gonna turn your back on you so fast. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's so important to put yourself first, and you just like have to kind of like fend for yourself. And I was kind mm-hmm. of out there like for like seven days straight, like being like, who can I trust here? Like I want to get yeah. to know everyone. Like, and so that's what I've kind of had a hard time with. Uh, in this industry is like making friends and like being able to like trust them and mm-hmm. I'm a pretty friendly person I don't like to be mean and so like I I literally am like yeah. I feel like I'm in middle school like trying to sit at the lunch table with the yeah. cool girls that's so true what is going cool, on can I sit here literally that's oh, what I felt like for a lot of it but then you know you get the hang of it and eventually you just kind of say all right well this is what I'm in charge of doing and I'm gonna just do my best I'm gonna do my job and I'm gonna do it well and Mm-hmm. It's the best you can do. And then you leave with battle scars. Um, you know, each show mm-hmm. you work, I feel like I walk away, mm-hmm. like, with a chip off my shoulder. Like, you know, I've learned something else. Yeah, yeah literally. You're going to learn some tough lessons in this industry. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's yeah. kind of it. But it was definitely, like, super fun. And, like, I am mm-hmm. so very grateful for being there. I'm halfway to my EGOT, I like to say. Cause yeah. <laughs> that's going to be insane. I have the Emmys and the Grammys to work in order to finish my EGOT. Oh, my gosh. That would be iconic. You're like, EGOT status. It's my, it's on my bucket list. <laughs> Bring me next time. Of course. Come in with me. Did you work like for the Oscars, like the Academy itself or like someone off of it? So basically there's a few production companies that they hire. One of the production companies that like basically runs and operates and they do all of like the big events. They do all the hiring out in LA and all mm. of us are freelance. There's not, I mean, most of us are freelance. And you do notice, like, when you work a lot of these live events, you see, like, the same accounting guy, credentials girl, and it's, like, it's mm-hmm. it's similar groups of people. Okay, so you get there, you were there for a week, you said? Mm-hmm. And that's, you're just prepping the whole entire week? Yes. Did you get to watch the ceremony where they, like, laid out the carpet? So, okay. yeah, so I was on main show, and I'm, like, working on everything inside of the Dovey Theater. Mm-hmm. And I'm, okay. a, I'm allowed to be on the red carpet, and we have the credentials to go out there, mm-hmm. but the pre-show doesn't have the credentials to come into us. Because wow. basically, like, okay. the main show collaborates with the pre-show, but the pre-show, they set up everything on their own. They have their mm-hmm. own union, their own grip guys, their okay. own everyone that sets up the red carpet 
who like broadcasts the the show. Mm-hmm. They have their own producers, their own coordinators. And then the second you step into the Dolby Theater is like a whole different team. In those seven days, like what were you doing? Like what was your main job? Every day was different. I mean, and being a production okay. assistant, it's kind of just like whatever is thrown at you. I was kind of like making sure that I was doing something. So I would, I'm the queen of walking in circles. I love to walk in circles. And so like anytime anyone needs me, I'll stop and sit, introduce myself and do something. I had a really good friend of mine who was working on the talent team. And so if she needed something, she would just text me. I knew the guy who was on dressing rooms. If he needed something, he would text me. And besides that, it was like if my production manager needed all of us to go to the loading dock and grab a bunch of expendables, like for example, wardrobe sent in like an entire truck of costumes on Thursday night like it was the ninth so it was the Thursday before Mm -hmm. the show and so we go out there like 8 p.m. and it took us like basically an hour to unload like all the wardrobe things and roll them in Mm -hmm. roll them into the wardrobe room and make sure that all the expendables were checked off and then we had everything that was in the truck mm-hmm. and then I could go anywhere from like doing that to like oh um Jimmy Kimmel's donkey is, is here we need someone to like you know unload the truck and make sure that the donkey's team has everything that it needs because he brought a donkey wow. out on the stage I- I'm surprised they didn't ask us to like you know scoop up the donkey's poop like you know <laughs> but I've been like that's where I draw the line that's PAs they'll they'll do anything that they're told and I, if they mm-hmm. told me to blow pick up the donkey's poop, I would have no choice but to do it. Who else is going to do it? I know. I know. So <laughs> I know. it's crazy. It'll go anywhere from that to being like, hey, can you go sit in um, the theater for this dress rehearsal um, and sit at the producer's mm-hmm. table? That They really need you to do script revisions. Anywhere from like that being that important to doing that important stuff to like, probably mm-hmm. like scooping up donkey poop. Oh my gosh. So you like got to sit in on the rehearsals of them for announcing these awards. Yeah. So like the first day is like presenters rehearsal so all the presenters will come in and then like the second day is like the dress rehearsal at the Oscars and with any award show in general there's stand-ins and so like the Mm stand-ins are like SAG certified actors who stand in and they read the teleprompter and obviously Nicole Kidman's not going to come in for like four days of rehearsal to say her one thing that she has to do so we pay the SAG eligible actors to stand on stage and pretend to be Nicole Kidman. I'd love to be Nicole Kidman for a day. Right? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And these stand-ins, they've been standing in for a long time. Like, they've been doing stand-in work for, like, years and years. Some people have been, like, doing oh. the stand-ins, being stand-ins at the Oscars for, like, 15 years straight. When we're in rehearsals, it's like, and for this rehearsal only, blah, 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 wins the award for best motion picture. And then, like, mm-hmm. all the stand-ins that are standing in place for that best mo- motion picture will go up. And they have oh to pretend gosh. to say a speech because they have to play the music and the graphics in the background. Uh-huh. So it doesn't really matter that the stand-ins are there. They're just there mm-hmm. so that the camera angles can be all, like... Nowhere to look. Yeah, yeah and, like, the lighting wow. is good. The music is good. And wow. they'll, like, have to say an acceptance speech. And, like, I'd like to thank my mom and my dad. And, and like, sometimes you have to, like, push the stand-ins off the stage because they don't want to get off. They're, like... You're, like, this isn't about you. Yeah. Did anyone, like, actually come to these rehearsals? Yeah, so, like, Pedro Pascal came. I will say right now, I, I had a really uh, good experience with him. I I feel like everyone says that. I, like, almost, like, peed my pants in the bathroom. Like, I think I would have passed out. Oh, uh, it was so... It's just, like, little experiences like that, like, when you're having a really hard yeah. day and you've carried your, like, 17th mm-hmm. case of, like, water that, like, makes it, makes it all worth the while. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Did you see, like, Florence Pugh... I had a good experience with her. Oh my god. In the Dolby Lounge, like, is where, like, all the celebrities kind of go, like, 
on commercial break and like they'll stay out there sometimes or they'll they'll just be chilling and in the Dobie lounge is where they like kind of all congregate and drink but they can't bring the drinks inside oh my god no natalie i literally want to punch you in the face right now. <laughs> no it's crazy but like the thing is too i'm kind of desensitized like like yeah. i come back and i say these things to like my friends and they're like what i'm like oh yeah, yeah like, flow oh, yeah. <laughs> i held her dress yeah, flow. It's just, like, things like that, where you're so used to it, and, like... That's so amazing. I have Taylor Swift's hair in, like, a little bag. Oh, my God. In my room. Oh, my God. Because these live events, you just... It's insane. Did you meet Kiwe Kwan? I did not. Oh, my God. He just looks like a ball of fun. He was. He was in the lounge talking up a storm. Did you meet Michelle Yeoh, or did you see her? I saw Michelle Yeoh because she was sitting in on rehearsals. Like, she was, like, part of the process, which was kind of crazy. Because I know she does something with the Academy... And so Mm -hmm. she was like at a few of the rehearsals, just walking around. And that's the thing. It's so casual. Like, like Jimmy Kimmel Mm -hmm. will just be like walking around in like sweatpants and like Mm -hmm. be like rehearsing his lines. And so it's like when you meet people that you've looked up to forever and you're like, okay, like, what do I ask you in these 30 seconds that I know you like blah, 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 all this stuff. But if I ever want to like work at that level, I need to like chill. But also if you want to be like feature film, like you want to be a director Mm -hmm. on a featured film. Oh, I want to be a feature. I want to be a director on an Oscar-winning feature film. So that's me. Exactly. So mm-hmm. you don't even necessarily need to get involved in the live event circuit. You just gotta get. Mm-hmm. In, you just gotta get involved in like the big movie making scenario. I know, and I feel like that's why I need to go to LA. And even if you go to LA, like I was thinking about going to LA next winter, and just spending okay. like the winter out there. I'll come with you. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say your biggest takeaway from the Oscars is? Biggest takeaway is that it's okay to like be disappointed in the experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. be disappointed in the people that like treated you bad, but I walk away with at least three positive things and only one negative mm-hmm. thing. That's what I say. All the positives are going to outweigh the negatives. I was like, I'm working the Oscar mm-hmm. awards. Mm-hmm. I'm 23 mm-hmm. years old. I'm in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. it's warm. My good friend was there with me, so it was like I had someone there to talk to about things. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. one bad thing was like, just like some shitty people. And you're always gonna run into shitty people. Mm -hmm. And I I need, my outcome was I need to just let that go sometimes. And I get so sad when Mm -hmm. people don't like me or when they are Mm -hmm. mean to me and I I get so in Mm -hmm. my head and I'm like, oh my God, is it because Mm -hmm. like, was carrying the waters and one of the waters mm-hmm. fell out and rolled down the hill yeah. like yeah no like it's not because of that you know one of my first episodes i was talking about all the like the bad experiences that i've had on set and there's only like two or three but most of the time when people are treating you bad it has literally nothing to do with you it's all them and their inner whatever's and most of the people i found that treat me ho- horribly are the ones that thought they would be further along in their career and they're not and they see us young 22 23 year olds who have our whole lives ahead of us and they're like oh i'm gonna be mean to you but like why would you we're like the next generation of like filmmakers and all this stuff so i'm like why would you not want us to succeed like i don't understand and also if anyone ever worked under me and did something good with their career i would be so happy for them like i just don't get the i'm also just not really a jealous person in that way but i just don't get it there's there's a huge like I mean, new wave of people coming in too. I think like a lot of the problem is pushing out the oldies that like don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like they have this dark cloud over them and 
we're all like mm -hmm. eager and yeah. willing to like sweat and like we want it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like mm -hmm. that it's like that pushing that old generation out and like bringing the new fresh like industry mm -hmm. in and the new people in mm -hmm. and us knowing that eventually when we're at that place where like when you're a director like mm -hmm. you're going to treat your PAs. I'm gonna treat them like gold. Yes, exactly. Like, so that's literally. kind of what I like think about as well. I'm like, you know what? They're gonna regret treating me that way because when I are like, when I'm the boss, I, mm -hmm. I can't wait to treat people better than you treated me. And it's also like rearranging the narrative. Think about how you were treated in that moment and how you would never want to make people feel how you felt, you know? Yeah. But the, also the thing is, I feel like there's no hierarchy really in this business until your name's really known. Like I was saying, I was peeing for two years and then I got a production coordinator role and then I got a script supervisor role, but then I'm peeing again. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's not like, it's not like climbing like a corporate ladder almost. It's just, especially when you're first starting out, it's just whatever you can get. Yeah, it's like whatever so, falls in your lap and when they need you, they need you. And when they don't, they don't. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on, Natalie. I know you have a very busy schedule and this is on your day off. So we appreciate you coming onto the pod. Thank you. Sharing your experiences and hopefully helping other people because, you know, I haven't had anyone in live events yet either, so. Of course, we always have to give out a helping hand. We do, see, we wanna help you. Yes. We want to help you. Thanks for having me on, it was <laughs> so, so fun. And now, finally, for our movie of the week, which was The Hurt Locker, directed by Catherine Biglow, who was the first woman to win Best Director at the Oscars. Why it took till 2008, we'll never know, but still pretty freaking cool. Along with winning Best Director, it also won five of their Oscars, including Best Motion Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Sound Editing. And now, this is a huge PSA. This little chat we're gonna have is gonna contain spoilers, so don't say I didn't warn you if you wanna watch it and you haven't yet, okay? And if you do wanna watch it, save this come back to it later. This film was filmed, <laughs> this film was filmed in Jordan, which is on the border of Iraq. And I was very curious as to where it was filmed because it looked very real and it didn't look like something that could just be made with sets. You know what I mean? Like just set building and decorating. And it was written by journalist Mark Bowl and he drew on all the experience he had while he was with the bomb squad in Iraq. And something that Catherine Biglow wanted to do was use lesser known actors to increase the sense of reality and realism within the film, which I think is a really cool idea because if you were to have a much more known actor in this, all you would be thinking about is all the other things they were in before, and it would take you out of the story. And since the story is so important and so impactful, you really wanna make sure that you're in it the whole time. This film does star Baby Hawkeye and Baby Falcon, AKA Jeremy Rayner and Anthony Mackie. Jeremy Rayner even went on to score himself a Best Actor nomination. And honestly, up until this point, I don't think I have really seen either of them act in a film like this. I've seen them obviously in all of their Marvel things, but it was really nice to see them act. Both of their performances absolutely blew me away, along with Brian Garrity, who played Eldridge, and I think he did a really good job with that role. Now, my overall favorite, favorite, favorite thing that Catherine Biglow did in terms of her directing was how she really was able to capture the emotional side that men are going through when they're in war. Because honestly, I don't think that a male director would have been able to do that. I think in a way, subconsciously, a male director would have been like, oh, we're all big and tough. But no, like you're seeing some shit 
shit when you're overseas. So <laughs> that stuff will impact you. And I think she did a really great job of, of showcasing that. So I think what a male director would have kind of brushed over Catherine Bigelow, brought to the surface and showed us what it's really like. And it made the story even more impactful. Another thing I really enjoyed was the way that the film itself was shot. It was shot in more of a documentary style per se. And I think it made the film feel more intimate. Like you were actually there with them. In the contrary of like set up this shot, set up this shot, close up, close up, far, medium, whatever. So we had a bunch of uses of an extreme wide shot into an extreme close up, getting those emotions as it's happening. And those quick and wide shots and the pans and the whips. Like you, obviously if you have seen the film, you will know what I'm talking about. I think that was a really interesting choice on her behalf. And obviously it was a good one because she won best director. And something I was wondering while I was watching is how long this movie took to film and I couldn't find it anywhere. But my guess is because of the way it was shot and in the way that they weren't doing these really intense setups and camera moves and all this stuff, I think it didn't take as long as a normal feature would take, if that makes any sense. So now that I've gotten that off my chest, <laughs> I think I'm gonna try and go in order of my notes and how I watched the movie. The first shot of the movie, we're immediately right into the action. We're immediately hooked as to what the heck is going on. And this shot did a really good job of setting the scene as to where they were in Iraq and what was going on at the time and the women and children screaming and running away and the American military trying to aid in this and all these men watching the American military just waiting for something bad to happen. Right off the bat, the anticipation is at 101%. You're already at the edge of your seat. Like there was absolutely no dilly-dallying to getting to the point of what this film was gonna be about. As I said earlier, Catherine Bigelow did a really good job of capturing the vulnerability of men and how they can also feel pain and loss. And this was also right off the bat when JT Stanborn is mourning the loss of his old team leader, Thompson. I feel like a man would have kind of brushed over this and been like, oh, I'm not sad that I lost my friend. You know, like, no, you're, <laughs> you're gonna be upset that you lost your friend and in such a intense way. So Jeremy Rayner's character shows up. His name is James. And he says he's not trying to take over. He's just trying to do the best he can. But I think that him and Thompson were very similar in personality, but in their approach, James seems to have much more confidence, even if it's stupid confidence, in the way that you can see the way that Thompson walked up to the bomb in the first scene. He was very careful and James just kind of trotted in there and got right in there. You know what I mean? So I don't know if that's stupid confidence or not, but it worked. Every time there was a shot of, and the way that every single time they showed an Iraqi's man staring at the American military, I, I was on the edge of my seat. And I think Catherine Bigelow, that was an intentional thing, was that you know you should be scared when she's showing this. But the fact that they were watching you and you're trying to deal with this bomb that could kill you and everyone around you, and you're wondering, are they gonna set it off? Are they gonna, and they're just watching you laughing. Like they think it's funny. And I'm telling you guys, when, <laughs> James pulled the wire up of, what was it? This, the first mission they went on, I think it was. And he pulled it up and there were like eight bombs attached to it. Oh my God, oh my God. I literally was like <gasps> audibly gasped, but he did it and they got out safe. And that is when him and Stanborn butted heads for the first time. Stanborn was like, I'm not standing for this. I'm not letting you kill yourself or me. I'm responsible for your safety. And if you don't let me do that, then I'm not able to do my job. And I totally get where Stanborn was coming from. And we see later on how much his thrill for him being James, his thrill for adrenaline is impacting the other people around him. That is seen when Eldridge is going home after being shot. And he's like, we didn't have to go out there. You just want you were going, you were looking for trouble, you needed this rush, 
and you took me down with you and I don't appreciate that. The minute the film started showing the relationship between James and Beckham, I knew that it would have some kind of impact down the line. And I don't know if it really has anything to do with the way that James treated Eldridge when he was kind of freaking out when they were at that shootout, but he treated him with such care. And I feel like I have no idea if it actually had anything to do with it, but that then gave Eldridge the confidence to shoot that guy and save all of them, you know? So they don't just put things in movies for no reason. And sometimes you have to kind of decipher and answer these things for yourself. And that's the conclusion I came to. But I also knew that something with Beckham wasn't going to end well. And we saw that later when his body was the body bomb. So then going back to Owen and his little freak out when they were at the stakeout, the way that the doctor kept checking up on Owen was making me scared. And obviously that was building the anticipation of when's he going to blow. He was like, oh, we should come out and see what we actually do. And the doctor comes and sees what he do. And he is blown up. I feel like that just sent Owen into a more internal spiral. We didn't really see it on the outside, but you could tell that that impacted him and it was almost like an everything happened to a reason thing when he was shot in the leg. He might have shattered his femur, but from the way he was going, I feel like he would have taken his own life if he wasn't removed from the situation as a whole. He was just not meant to be in Iraq anymore, so it might have been a blessing in disguise, even though he's not going to be able to walk for six months. When the movie jumped from 37 to 23 days left in their mission, the immediate chat that Stanboard and Eldridge are having when James goes down to get his gloves are, you know, like these things malfunction all the time meeting the bomb he was holding. I was just like, you're not really thinking of killing him though. And I think that that jump in time and to have that conversation first after the jump in time just shows how over it Stanborn was with James and his actions and how willy nilly he can be with this stuff sometimes. It's like, you might not care about your life, but also all these people around you are gonna die if you don't do this correctly. So, so then after this, my guy Ralph Phineas shows up and five minutes later he was gone. I was like, what's going on? And I'm only laughing because I love Ralph Phineas and I was just sad to see him gone so soon. And again, it was just very unexpected. So then there was this whole scene of James and Stanborn and Eldridge all bonding for the first time and drinking and play fighting as men do. I don't know why they do that, but whatever. But it showed that character development between all three of them, how they can go from play fighting to going through all of James's things and being like, it's so weird to hold the thing that, it's so weird to hold the thing that might've killed me. He was talking about all of the parts of the bomb that he had kept after disarming them. And they kind of got into that little, into a moment with each other of just realizing their circumstances and realizing that if this was gonna work, they had to trust each other. And I knew from that moment that that was gonna be a turning point for those two characters, specifically James and Stanborn. And then again, we see how ruly James can be when he goes off on his own on this quote-unquote mission to figure out who did what to Beckham. And I fully thought he wasn't going to be able to find his way home after this. I really did. And I was like, oh, he's fucked. But it shows that he never thinks things through. And it's one of his character flaws. And I think that's something that Jeremy Rayner played very well. And then I have this one part after uh, the Green Zone suicide bombing when James wanted to go out and look for the men who were watching them and laughing. The American military cleaned up their mess. I have a note down that says, oh, you tell him Eldridge. But judging from the scene before, Eldridge is telling him off when he's getting onto the helicopter, he already knows. The scene before that was James in the shower just breaking down crying. Like, he knows what he did wrong. And it's a shame that he doesn't, he's not able to think things through until after the fact. And then we jump down again 
to two days left. And the scene after they unfortunately could not save the man with the bomb around his body just broke my heart. Anthony Mackie was phenomenal in that scene. And I think he finally kind of pushed James to think about things he had been pushing to the back of his mind. And just from slapping to that moment in the car is just intense. But as we know that conversation didn't work as we see James talking to his kid and saying that he's never loved anything more than what he does. And then the last shot of the film is him again in the bomb suit with 365 days left of his tour. Crazy motherfucker. <laughs> but Catherine Bigelow is a badass for this one. I mean, what a phenomenal, phenomenal film. And for it to be a genre that usually men only direct, even better. And if you have not watched yet and you have not joined the club yet, it's a good one. I really don't think it's like your typical war movies. I think there's a more emotional side to it for sure. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that a female did direct it. Yeah, it's a very fast watch. Like halfway through it, I had to pause it to go grab a snack and I was already an hour through it. And I was like, what? How did that happen? So that's when you know you're watching a good movie. And that is our first Happy Movie Watchers Club chat. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I've already announced the film for next week and it is still Alice starring Julianne Moore. That's one you're gonna want tissues for. And I will talk to you next week. This was the Feminist Film Club podcast hosted by Megan Mealy. Thank you so much for listening. I seriously really appreciate it. And as always, happy movie watching.